it comes to podcasts, Chris and Cole Mountain Cal can do a bump and run with the best of them. All they need is an air pressure or track bar adjustment, a round of wedge, and a top off of some Sunoco racing fuel. But on this episode, they've got something even better. Stopping by the Doc Holcomb Tower today is none other than Georgia Racing Hall of Famer Dan Elliott, and he's going to be helping us find where the rubber meets the road. It's the Fast As You episode right here on The Crossing, where the music meets the memories. Once again, from high top, the world-famous Doc Hawkins building in downtown Coal Mountain, it's your old buddy Coal Mountain Cal, along with my brother Chris Cheatham, for another episode of The Crossing, where the music meets some memories. Chris, how you doing tonight? I'm doing well, sir. I'm doing well. Doing especially well now that we have some uh, Georgia royalty with us tonight. Everybody's looking around the room. <laughs> it ain't you and me. We do have a special guest tonight. Won't you tell the folks about this fine young man sitting in with us? Ladies and gentlemen, we have the legendary Dan Elliott who is joining us today. And um, You don't know the... much about me, do you? <laughs> <laughs> We're about to. We're oh, about we know to. a lot. We're about to. I mean, I when I was when I was growing up and, and following and following Bill, I always knew about Bill's brothers and Ernie and and Dan and um, but you got to go way deeper because of my mom and dad. That's where we're going to go. Mm-hmm. We want to talk. We're going to we, cut it to the bone tonight. Yeah, we're, we're going to we want to go. We want to go deep roots. We want to learn about the Elliott family in Dawsonville and the Ford dealership and um, how the family got involved in racing and and uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to go from one thing to the other. Just. Like I that. thought this was a music show. <laughs> he did. I called and talked to him. He goes, now, I don't know much about music. I was always at the racetrack and stuff. I have yeah. seen Dwight Yoakam, though. Well, we said. can't get into some music. Yeah, Dwight Yoakam blew me out of the fifth row at Country Land. Lanier Land. Lanier Land. Yeah, Lanier Land. Oh, yeah. Chris and I used to work at Lanier Land. We were sure spotlight did. operators. In the time. I wish you'd have sold earplugs. Small world. <laughs> did you? Were you sitting down there with that uh, racing helmet on with the microphone that comes out in front of you? I was sitting there not suspecting anything. He strummed up about like Michael J. Fox on Back to the Future. <laughs> Just blowed you out. You yes. were close too, right? You were oh, close. I was way too close. <laughs> you could have you could have cranked up a race car next to me, and he had overshadowed the race car. Well, you got to get it back. You got to push the sound all the way back. Where I pushed yeah, myself reach those all folks. the way back outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll get to Dwight Yoakam and Dan Elliott, dear Lynn, but uh, first we're going to start back in Dawsonville. So just tell the folks, the ones that don't know them, because just about everybody that follows us know us, so they know the same stuff we do. Yeah, a lot famous. Of it. We mm-hmm. are famous. Yeah, infamous. But, uh, Dan Elliott, born in Dawsonville, Georgia. Born, raised, uh, actually born in Cumming, Georgia. Ah, oh, so yep. was I. Mary Alice Hospital. There. I wasn't there. That was before. Yep, Mary Alice Hospital and um, Doctor Dunn mm-hmm. and. Um, some of the other more infamous doctors that were there at the time. Mashburns, the Mashburns, the and Mashburns took took real good care of me. Dunn delivered me as well. So, yep. And um, Mashburn, Mashburn took out my appendix whenever, whenever I had it out sometime in the early seventies, and I thought he'd kill me at that time, <laughs> but lived through that. So the good doctor. Good. The speaking of doctors, the good doctor producer Steve Thompson with us tonight uh, said he was also. Did that go out live, Steve, or is that just in our heads? He said that was just in our ears, but he was uh, his doc, Dr. Dunn delivered him as well. So we're all we're all related. Didn't we're even all know related. it. Related. That's exactly right. So what but year was that? You that were born. Born in fifty one. Fifty one. Fifty one. That seems like a long time ago. 
And grew up in Dawsonville. And grew Dawsonville. up in Dawsonville. And, and, you know, it was, you know, you, you talk about how other towns are in North Georgia, and no one could ever believe that Dawsonville was as small as it was. And growing up there was probably, to me, the most awesome thing that you could do because you could, um, as a kid, you could run up and down the roads pretty well. and Absolutely no cares in the world. Mm, nothing, Come out except, anything. nothing except mother and daddy finding exactly. out. Mm, so yeah. that, that was only cares because you got it worse from them than if you got it at school, you got to get it home. So I guess I was talking <laughs> imminent dangers like the outside world, predators and all that, like we got now. You can't even let your kids go outside. Never, never lock the cars, never lock the doors. Just, yeah, it was, it was a great time to grow up. And um, I wish our children knew the same thing today. Yeah, that would, that would be uh, awesome. That's a good word than that we're going to be using, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was a totally different time, I'm sure. Back in, I mean, Dawsonville still remained, I mean, downtown Dawsonville on the square is still remained somewhat rural, hadn't it? I mean, I know you go out mm. towards 400, it still it gets a little Not wild, really. But. Everybody everybody thinks Dawsonville's 400. Nobody considers the downtown part Dawsonville anymore. And I'm just the opposite. It's, it's 400 is Dawsonville, and... It um, it may as well be its own city, and I wish it would kind of just saw it off, and it could float out in Lake Lanier too. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. When I, I consider Dawsonville the square area, that's what I think when I say going to Dawsonville. And so you went to, of course, you went to high school in Dawsonville, mm-hmm. Dawsonville High, Dawson County High the School. The only one. The only one. And um, your parents. Born and raised in Dawsonville, or did they move in? Parents born and raised, grandparents born and raised. That's awesome. Now, did you play any sports and stuff coming up? Or you yeah, racing. Racing yep. to the bone. Yep. If we weren't foot racing, we were racing truck wagons. And if we weren't racing truck wagons, we were racing forklifts. And because Daddy had a building supply, I had a feed mill first. And we grew up younger years with the feed mill because there's Ernie, Ernie's the oldest, then myself, and then Bill. And um, then once Daddy, chicken house, poultry industry was just coming into its own at that time. So Daddy was kind of ahead of the curve, and boy, he left some, some awful big shoes to fill because you talk about a man ahead of his time as far as what he was into. It's just unbelievable. The his things visions. That, oh, yeah. Unbelievable. He was just threw one business into another, and each one prospered. Each so one did extremely the well. The building supply place was before the car dealership. The building supply came first, and um, at that time we were we were delivering lumber all over, everywhere. I remember coming home from high school and taking loads of lumber down to Eatonton or Union Point, and Union Point's where we picked it up at, and. That was the biggest lumber mill I'd ever seen as a kid down there because they had a forklift pick up two bundles of two by ten, sixteen foot, and that's heavy. That is that is mm-hmm. awesome. And, and to to see what was on that yard down there and go down there and pick up lumber and bring it back home and always uh, always something going on. Sit on top of the world. Yep. Now your daddy, your daddy's name was George, right? Yes. Did he always kind of have a a vision of his boys being involved in racing did he encourage it was it i i think that we lived out his dream as far as what he wanted to do because he was always involved in racing whether it would be with gober sosby or anybody else because i remember he took us to the first atlanta race 
1960 or 61 down at Atlanta Motor Speedway, Atlanta International Raceway at that time. But we were just small kids, had no idea what was going on. Was that one of your earliest memories of racing, was going to Atlanta or going to Daytona? Probably going to Atlanta, that and some of the dirt tracks that Dixie. Daddy took us to as Did you go to kids. Dixie a lot, or was it open or, at that time? Dixie was not open at that time. You had um, Canton International Speedway. You had one speedway over at the end of 108 before it's in the 20 over there going toward Canton, Cherokee Speedway. And I remember the mountain here at coming mm-hmm, several of the tracks because as kids, that's just, you know, that's slinging mud everywhere and everybody fussing and fighting. First first memories are we went to a race somewhere and Daddy set us up in the grandstands and he went down to the infield and we were sitting up there and somewhere during the race, the flagman must have flagged somebody wrong that had a girlfriend sitting in the grandstand. She climbed the flag stand, beat the crap out of him with her pocketbook. So I'm thinking, what have we come to? But I'm ready to go back. I'm ready. <laughs> now, did George, was George, did he ever get behind the wheel at all? Or he, nope, just loved he, always, he just loved watching it and He always being had part cars, but he always had drivers that drove the car. Now, when you say he had cars, I mean, did he... They do a lot of building of cars. Yeah, but at that time, you brought a car out of the junkyard or just came up with something, old car, and put roll bars in it. Didn't take a whole lot to build one. It back took in those nothing days. to build one. So as so we progress into y'all start getting a little older, you and Bill and Ernie, especially you and Ernie, I guess, and y'all took a turn or took the bug. Well, we we all were involved in one way or another. Ernie got sort of kind of interested in doing the motor stuff. It, it It's funny how it all worked out, but Ernie got interested in doing the motor stuff. And when we were still running short track, I was helping Daddy when we, Daddy bought the Ford dealership in 69. And um, we kept it open until sometime I think Daddy sold it sometime around 86, 87, and um, in the meantime, Daddy had run the race car as much as he could run it, and um, bills were bills were coming in pretty strong, so he had to do something. So Ernie and Bill went to Harry Melling through Benny Parsons, who was driving for Harry, so they went and visited Harry, and Harry ended up buying the team yeah. from Daddy, which at that time it wasn't worth very much. But the fact that um, it was, it put money into the kitty where we could kind of spend a little money and kind of show what we were capable of doing. So back a little bit before that, tell me about 1976 on y'all's first four. Of course. I guess leading up to that, Bill ran his short track races and stuff, and y'all just kind of progressed on up the ladder a little bit, and you decided you wanted to go to Rockingham in 76. Yeah, but see, we'd already been to Rockingham because Daddy had Jody Ridley. Jody drove one of the cars. Daddy had several drivers, Harry Gailey and um, um, Aaron Gailey, Kenneth Stevens, Dan Lingerfeld. We'd already been to the Lakewood racetrack down there and run at Lakewood. So we'd been used to a little bit of the bigger type racing. 
But Daddy came home one night and he said he could run Grand National, which is Cup, the big league. The big league. He, he said he could run it for the same money he was spending on doing this other stuff and get a whole lot more exposure out of it. So and there wasn't, wasn't there a time when y'all when your daddy bought a lot of bought a car or a team from Penske. Well, Penske switched from Penske was running the Mercuries, the Ford and the Mercuries, and the big deal with the Ford stuff was the fact that the cylinder block was the big deal, and Ford NASCAR had already downsized the cubic inch to three fifty eight. So the cylinder blocks for Ford, Ford had already quit casting the Cleveland block in America, and Australia was still casting that particular block because they used that block several years after Ford did in the U.S. So the Ford teams got together, convinced Ford to cast up some high nickel content blocks in Australia, have them machined. Actually, I think they were cast in the U.S., sent to Australia and have machined, and then sent back here. So in that particular period, sometime in the mid to late 70s, the thing that you needed was cylinder blocks. So when Penske decided to sell, it was a big deal knowing that he had 14 cylinder blocks with this car. And when Daddy got a hold of Roger, the whole deal was that Roger didn't want any of the other Ford teams, which was the Wood Brothers and Bud Moore, because there was only three or four Jenny Donlevy. Jenny Donlevy. And that was pretty much it other than us. So he didn't want any other teams getting a hold of the blocks because he felt like that would be competition. And so anyway, we ended up buying the stuff. Mother sold a piece of property that she had just come up with the money to buy the race car. And that really blew my mind that um, (laughs) Mother did that because I really didn't think Mother was for the racing very much. But she supported it really well. And um, so once we got the car and got the cylinder blocks, it enabled us to take the next step. And I just always said that, that this deal was a series of stepping stones. And if any of the stones had been missing, you wouldn't be where you are today. Exactly. And it took all of those to get to the final part. So 76, it said you went to Rockingham and out of 36 car field, you qualified 34th. Uh, was it? It was. I think there's more than 36 cars there, I believe. Might have been a more cars that tried to start the race, but... Uh, <laughs> Let's just know, say you weren't on the pole then. <laughs> we, weren't even, we weren't even in the same zip code. Said uh, 32 laps, the oil pump went out. Yeah. Does that sound about right? Yeah, we were running on parts and pieces that were that were wore out when we got the stuff, and... The car that we took to Rockingham was actually a car that Daddy had bought from Richie Panch. It came through Bobby Allison. But uh, it was Richie Panch's car after Richie got killed in the plane crash. And um, the car was was a little bit obsolete in the fact that the Torinos went from a faceback version to a formal roof version. And... There was a three-year rule for bodies, so went down. Daddy went down the field and stripped off a wrecked car they had down there and converted that car into the car that would be legal for NASCAR. So modern-day fabrication. Yeah, but it, it it goes back to tell you 
where this sport came from uh-huh. and the fact that you could basically, as all short track people did at one time or another, all the stuff was born out of the junkyard. And and you were able to do that to some degree and look where we're at today. I don't I don't know that we've progressed in what we've done today because now it's a fleet of engineers that build the cars and if you don't have a fleet of engineers, if you don't have a like like the old saying, you know, how do you make a small fortune in racing? Start with a large one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and tell Chris and everybody uh, when you're I thought it, this was you, you, the first trip to Rockingham, but you said you'd been there before, but how far away it was from Dawsonville. Cause I've been there before and it takes forever to get there. And it's just North Carolina. Yeah, Shores Hill took a long time to get there now. Yeah, you go to Charlotte and turn right. And then you just keep going. And so going. yeah, it's, it's a long way up there, but it was, uh, loved Rockingham. Bill loved Rockingham. And it was one of those racetracks where if you ever went there you, you kind of fell in love with it, and you wanted to go back. So it was kind of it was kind of a super speedway for us, and um, it wasn't Daytona yet, but um, it sure was close. Now, when everything was getting going, you you were still, in, I'm assuming, heavily involved in the Ford dealership at the time, right? You were yeah. just kind of a weekend warrior. You go. were you were weekend, you were midnight warrior, you were everything because you got to figure that there were only probably four or five of you trying to do all this stuff but it was it was a labor of love you know you love oh, exactly. to do this stuff and running the pits too i guess yeah because um the way you didn't have much in the pits anyway so you didn't have to worry about much because you didn't have much them dawsonville boys with hell with some big old air guns oh they hadn't seen nothing like that before had they yeah that or a four-way lug wrench yeah <laughs> so you got your first top five at the southern 500 in 1979 Second to Pearson. Does that sound about right? Yeah, sounds about right. And then in 1980, you met up with Harry Mellon, as we were talking about, via Benny Parsons. Yep, through Benny. Said that Harry gave you $500. Yep. That was a lot of money. It enabled us to get a set of tires, so really helped out a lot. And, um, you know, for all the people, I said a long time ago that um, the, the town of Dawsonville the people that we grew up with as kids and got to know, they supported you through thick and thin. And and it really was unbelievable how much support you got from the local people there. And it it's not that you could do anything you wanted to do, but through the racing they supported everything that you did and you know, the the newspaper there was the same way and the articles that won the articles but people who had businesses there in the city or the county would put ads in the paper and it really didn't mean a lot and harry was a big oil pump and gear manufacturer in michigan yeah harry was um harry's dad and a friend of his dad i think they hand built most every bit of the equipment that they had building and producing oil pumps so I think there's where the relationship really got stronger because we could relate to each other on backgrounds, where you'd come from and how hard you had worked to get where you were at. I read where Harry said that the reason, like you said, they got along. He said, those Elliott boys, they work hard and they're honest. Mm. And they and they give it all they got. And he said, I think that's what you're looking for 
in this type of business because you got to have it to succeed. To succeed, absolutely. And and I know that um, it really did help out everything that Harry did because he trusted us. And um, he didn't give us everything we wanted, but he gave us what we needed. And he wouldn't fly anywhere either, would he? Was I, it, did I read that somewhere? I don't know. He if, wouldn't go to races because he didn't like to fly. That was the main thing. Everything was so far from Michigan, most of them. <laughs> Everything was far away, that's for sure. But um, I don't know if he liked to fly or not. But if you were going to get somewhere, a lot of the races, that was the only way you could do it. Now, was it him that introduced y'all to Coors and brought Coors to the table? Actually, Or did they seek y'all out? They sought us out after the win. We had already been talking to them before the win at Riverside in 83. Which was the first win for Bill. Which was the first win. And and that was what they saw. You know, like I said, this this was a series of stepping stones. And as I told somebody not long ago, if if you didn't see the hand of God in all of this stuff, you had to be blind. Because had any of those stones or any of these connections not been there, you wouldn't be where you are today. So you got a you won a six hundred and forty dollar purse or you didn't win it, but that's what you received in Rockingham in seventy six. Harry Mellon buys, gives you five hundred bucks to keep going a little further. Then mm-hmm. he buys a team. Y'all get him a win. And then Coors sponsorship brings in four hundred thousand bucks as best I can recall according to the my records that I yeah, read. Yeah, it wasn't quite half a million, but it really didn't enable us to, to take another step. And you know we didn't we didn't start run, running all the races until eighty three. Eighty three was the first year we ran all the races. And, and then boy, in eighty four, you wind up what a wake up call that was. Eighty four, you wind up third in points mm-hmm. at the end of the year. Yeah. And Mellon continued to stay involved with the team even after Coors. Well, see, Harry was Harry was a businessman. He was in Michigan. We were in Georgia. He pretty much let us do our own thing. He just said, y'all do what you do best. And he said, when you send me too many bills, we'll have a talk. We'll start talking. Yeah, we'll have a talk. So that really did help out a lot because, like I said, he didn't give, her, give us everything we wanted, but he gave us all we needed. Folks, we're sitting here with Dan Elliott going over some old NASCAR days, and we're going to talk to some sponsors right now. So we'll be right back after this fine word from some of our local sponsors give them a listen we'll be right back to talk some more with dan elliott you listen to the crossing where the music meets memories with chris and cal there's no gas wars in coming we've got the best prices in town at 49.9 a gallon at martyr oil two locations to serve you martyr oil number one at highway 19306 on the south side of martyr oil number two highway 19 and 141 You probably haven't checked the propane tank lately. It's when the pilot light goes out that you finally notice, right? And now you're in a bind. Who do you call? Mills Fuel Service right now. Mills Fuel has provided North Georgia with fast, courteous service and clean propane for over 50 years. So don't let the tank hit rock bottom. Call Mills today, 706-265-3394. Three locations to serve you coming Dawsonville and Dahlonega online at millsfuelservice.com. Sun's out, plows out, folks. Time to get your gardens planted. And when you need your planting supplies, T.R. Thomas Mill in Coal Mountain is the place you need to go. 
Come in and get your seeds for your corn, peas, turnips, and beans. We got half runners and full runners. Don't forget, you gotta have some new honor for fertilizer. T.R. Thomas Mill. Hey, we're in Coal Mountain Spot Road, USA, across from Jan's Jeans. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, Coal Mountain Cow, sitting here with our brother Dan Elliott. Uh, we all got on shades. We apologize if there's a buzzing on the uh, recording here, thanks to the new LED. That's interference from the lights. It is. It's we got this new LED that's in downtown Coal Mountain, and uh, apparently they think we're in Vinings or, or Buckhead or something. So I'm moving to Silver City. <laughs> In, in protest, we're going to start doing our show on top of that billboard and, and not come down yeah, until that down. thing comes down. Ain't coming down until it comes down. Anywho, we're back with Dan Elliott. We're, uh, we've worked our way up into the uh, 1985 season, which uh, Pot's was a very memorable season. I might so regress. You might regress. Yeah, I might regress. So you roll into Daytona, 1985. What were your... What were you, what we were you thinking? In, we rolled into Daytona long before that, <laughs> and what was I thinking before that? It's like, boy, are we out of place. You know, you go into Rockingham as kids, and you're wearing your work clothes, and you see all these other people. That was the beginning. The late 70s, early 80s was the beginnings of the uniforms and the patches and all the stuff that was going on. and. You know, it was just eye-opening to to walk around and see the people that you had imitated as kids, and they were your heroes. So who would would be your biggest, I guess, hero in NASCAR that you were able to meet? Okay, so in the cornfield cornfield back of my grandpa's house, so I had had the Petty Plymouth, and Bill had the uh, Pearson Ford, and... You know, you you always you were always one of the drivers, and you you tried to imitate. And you were banking off the tree at the edge of the cornfield, and that was your Darlington stripe and door handle to door handle. Well, never got that close, but <laughs> you were you were just you know you were just idolizing. You were that was your heroes, and, and you're down and there you, rubbing elbows, and, with you, and you go well, you're not rubbing elbows with them, but you see them walking by. And I was going to ask you something that I always wanted. To, when y'all were breaking in at at that time, were you welcomed into the fraternity, or were you kind of there just kind of sat back looking at y'all like, we'll see if they You're earn never keep? welcomed in, I don't think, when you, you earn your way into anything, I think, whether it be music, whether it be ball, whatever, you earn your way in. You're, you're not just, if, if you do end up running good one race and... You're on top of the world, and everybody thinks that uh, okay, you know, it was a one race fluke, and you know they'll be they'll be back um, where they need to. They'll be back where they're supposed yeah, to be, be later. They'll be back down next weekend, and that was one thing about racing that was for sure is that um, you're on top of the world one week, and you're at the bottom of the valley the next one. So who did there? There had to be somebody there though in the garage area that kind of took to you a little bit, and did they offer you any kind of advice or would they show you things yeah, or get out of racing <laughs> yeah I, I don't know that um you know you went to different people for help but you were so lost you were so new to this that you 
were you afraid really to. didn't have a clue as to even what you were asking or what you were asking for. You just did not have a clue because it's like the team member that they uh, we had one of the guys in the early years and I don't remember who sent him to borrow a long wait from one of the other teams, but he went to borrow a long wait, and that's what he did. He had a long wait. <laughs> it had nothing to do except you're waiting long. So, like a hood stretcher or something. Yeah. It was unbelievable what you get into in the early years, and you don't even realize what's going on at that time. But, you know, you had to learn. You had to be in it and learn so much. And each year was a learning year, a learning curve, and um, it just took forever. But once you got there, it was then it was like you could do no wrong, and and that went on for a little while, and then it went again to where you could do, do no right, like a gambler. Oh, it was it was unbelievable <clears throat> how you went from one extreme to the other, and life will throw you the same curves. So well, what point did 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 you say, okay, we've hit it, this is it? I never said that. Never felt it. You were I always felt like it was right behind you. The didn't have time. Each week was something different. If it just life came at you, and and whatever came, you tried to deal with whatever came at that moment. You know, whatever struggles, whether it be personal, whether it be business, whatever it was, you just tried to deal with it as you came to it. I, I think that you were trying to be more reactive than proactive because you really didn't know what to expect. So 1985, Daytona 500, mm-hmm. my first one that I got to go to. I've been to the Firecracker in July because we would always vacation down there, but... Mm-hmm. February in Daytona is a whole different ball of wax. It's a different atmosphere. It's everything. And oh, you, and that I'm was sure such a different time, to too. Yeah. Benny Parsons stayed at the same hotel we stayed at. Mm. I remember seeing him at the pool on Saturday. Yeah, yeah that was, was, such a that was when the drivers and the crew stayed were just pretty much regular people. Yeah. And, yeah. And they might not have wanted to socialize with you much, but they were kind of in the same group. They were there, and you were there, and you ran across them at the eating places where you stayed at. And yeah. It was it was still then a um, it was still then normal. It, it was still normal. The, the first I can the first I can remember of unnormal. I went to a race. Bill had gone to drive for Junior, I believe, sometime in the early nineties. And you go to the back of the truck, and um, there's a sign on the door that says "Crew Only." You pretty much know then that that. The way it was is gone is is no more. Right. But yeah, I'm like, I'm 18, going on 19, and I get to go to Daytona to the 500 for the first year because Daddy lets me tag along that year because yeah, but I'm, the but the Daytona race we we'd already raced Daytona. We hadn't won Daytona, but we'd already raced Daytona. Yes. And to us, it was just another event we were trying to win. It didn't matter if it was Martinsville or Bristol or. Daytona or Michigan, it was just another event we wanted to win. To y'all. <clears throat> to but us. to the general public, Dawsonville and coming, yeah, that was the big yeah, one. Yeah, but the general public was across the fence. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Sitting in the grandstands. They weren't the ones you were looking at, The your peers, your competitors. 
those are the people that you, you were concerned with. Exactly. Bill said he didn't even have a, a real good race car that day. He didn't think. Said a lot of things. He didn't just think, kinda... but you've got to look at what led up to Daytona in 85. I knew when we went and tested in late 84, we went to Talladega. And we hit on a few things where everybody says, you know, y'all cheated, what's your secret? What's but we, we hit on a deal where the the problem was with the 83 Thunderbird. The, the 83 was aerodynamically a pretty bad race car. But we Ernie worked really hard on trying to get air to the engine because if he could get air to the engine, the engine would run. So he worked extremely hard on the cowl, the breathers, the way the windshield was, the angle that it was in the car and worked on that stuff extremely hard and it paid off and it paid off late in 84 because we won three races in 84 and um so that had a steam going into 85 it gave you that momentum to know that you were close you were close so the 85 thunderbird 86 thunderbird was after we figured out a few things on that 85 car really the 84 car once figured out a few things on it, then that same body style, the 83, 4, 5, and 6, was the same car. NASCAR played with the rules a little bit on heights and widths and stuff like that, but basically it was the same car. It wasn't until we got into 87 that Ford, whether they knew it or not, the 87 Thunderbird was truly a race car. It was sleek. It it had a it they raised the deck lid on the rear which made the spoiler more effective and NASCAR had let you do the air dam on the front of the car and we'd figured out a few things kinda on our own what to do to the body and um contrary to what a lot of people said about narrowing the car up or it wasn't that. The car was very balanced, and it was very stable. And it fed the engine even better than the 85 car did. It pressurized the engine compartment even better, so the engine had the ability to run better. Right. So you went to Daytona 585, and this was the year they kicked out the Winston Million, where if you won three out of the four crown jewels mm-hmm. see my quotation marks there yeah but do you remember the four that were the crown jewels yes it was the daytona 500 why the daytona why yeah i don't know you have to feel most me prestigious okay super uh, bowl of yeah. race oh, talladega <clears throat> the feistest darlington the oldest. oldest charlotte the longest and that is why we have this show right there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Dan will be hosting this show next week. Me and Chris will be down at the uh, supermarket bag. We'll just groceries. mail it in. That's. A, I never really thought about it like that. Yeah. So, so you go to Talladega. In, so so they so we go to Talladega and we um, start the race and we have an oil line that comes loose. We we all thought the car was blowing up, but Bill says car's running. Says we've got an oil line, so comes down pit road and we're very very fortunate in the fact that we find and repair it and only lose right at two laps 
is what mm-hmm. allow us. Which is a long way nowadays. <laughs> Which when is you a lose long way. Yeah, that's two point six six times two almost. And then of all the times that you could run caution free, then you know you run up till I think just close to the end of the race, 10, 20 laps in the end before you ever have a caution. I was there. It looked like it had blown completely up. And then <clears throat> the hood goes, you see the hood go up, you know there's issues. Then it goes back down and he takes off. And, and we're takes like, off. there he goes. And then Bill comes back on the radio and he says, how hard can I run this thing? And <laughs> Ernie says, hard as you have to. So that really was the race that you did not want everybody to see what you had. Per Richard Petty, didn't that? Wasn't that no, what he told y'all? Per us. Never let, never let him, never let him see everything you got. Whenever, yeah, what he but, said he, but it was all on the line for that race because if you didn't win that race, you wouldn't have won the million. So, so, but you fought back those two laps. <clears throat> yeah, under but, green. Yeah, but um, man, what a car! And Bill drove extremely well, and there wasn't anybody that could run with that car. And that's really when. All the other teams figured out that they had to go to work, and NASCAR comes in and starts making changes. And, you know, it it takes a little while to figure out that NASCAR makes these changes, so you're busy doing stuff to where that you don't have time to cheat. There's there's where it all comes in, and, and it's not even necessarily cheating. It's just the gray areas, which at that time... There were there there wasn't a rule on every little thing as you have today, but NASCAR was dumbfounded though. We Am all I correct. We all were more than you guys were. I don't know that they were any more dumbfounded than we were on how good the car all day long. It was flawless. Daytona was flawless, and like I said, I I, I truly hand of God was in this at the end. Was NASCAR have y'all under a microscope whenever that was going down? Yeah. Did you feel? Yeah, especially afterwards. I mean, were they like after Daytona? After the run you had at Daytona, they were already looking at you hard and heavy. You that was long before you got to Talladega. So you knew, and that's what we didn't want to show because they wouldn't have been anywhere near that if you could have just run your own race at Talladega and. And, and squeezed out a win at the end, then no one have been, would have been the wiser. And, and it still wouldn't have, I don't, I don't think it still would have meant that it would have been an easy championship to take home. I'm not saying that because our, our hard parts of 85 was we were good on the speedways, but we were not good at all on the short tracks. So you win those two, and you move to Charlotte, and then the media onslaught just sucks y'all in. Or suffocates you, that's what I was trying to say. The media didn't have to do it. That was more self-inflicted than the media. Did you have a lot of pressure on yourself once you did that? Oh, Darlington. You don't know know the hype of it until you get to Darlington. Charlotte, was it? how did you finish in Charlotte? It was not a good race. No, because we had a... um, in, you always have to check every little thing on the car. Well, we had bought some new wheels, and one of the wheels had where the wheel is bent around in a circle and welded. There was some extra weld that hang that that hung down on the inside of the wheel. 
Well, that rubbed the brake caliper, and it rubbed a hole in the brake line and no brakes. So it, it was one of those little things that bit you that no one knows what it's like to run a race until you run a full season of races. No one can prepare you for you. You get through half the season, and it's like, holy crap. crap. We still got half a season to go. And that's what I always said about Tony Stewart, because Tony Stewart was always stronger in the second half of the year than he was in the first half. That always amazed me, because anyone that can finish the season, it's like life. If you can finish better than you start, buddy, you're stout. Get them covered. Yep, you got them covered, and you got life covered, because... Because it just keeps coming at you. And that's the way the races were. You ran half a season and you turned around and started the season all over again. And by half a season, you'd done work yourself to where that you were absolutely worn out. So you got one race to go to for the, all the marbles for the million dollars. Hmm. Darlington, the oldest, hmm. and the track too tough to tame, as they call it. Yeah, it was... It was, Can you, it was his own racetrack because Darlington, you yeah. raced the racetrack. You didn't race competitors. You raced the track. And I love that configuration. I love the configuration of the old racetracks before all these owners came in and started changing front straightaway, back straightaway, and redoing the tracks and making them smoother and concrete at Bristol. I loved the old racetracks, and that was just me. And Would you I, say that was your favorite track? Still is, uh, probably Michigan. <clears throat> Love Michigan. And Bill's favorite track was Rockingham. Shoot, I'd say everywhere you want at. He just like yeah. <laughs> only the ones you want at. Those <laughs> are your ones favorite. You want at. That's it. And so did when, Ernie have a favorite track or a track that he loved to visit or that any, loved to run? Any track that he could lap the field, you know, that would have been a great track. So, so you're going for the million. Take us from the time you roll in the gate that morning. Up and and through the race, I'll just kind of let you describe it the best as you remember. Because you said you don't have tired, any memory of it. Hungry. Were you wore out by the time it even started? You were wore out by the time you got there. <clears throat> and then everybody walking up to you, can you do it? Can you do it? You know. And then media, because I can remember the only thing Daryl ever said: they're going to choke. They're going to choke. They're going to mm-hmm. choke. So he kept playing his head games. Exactly, and. Um, <clears throat> those were um, those weren't hard to overcome. It was the self-inflicted. It was the stuff that you knew, and you know you didn't have fleet engineers like you do today. You can you can pretty much your odds today of being able to put together a winning package with the number of engineers and and the technology that you have today is pretty doggone good. Because you look today and how much attrition do you have in a race anymore? I was talking with Doug and them and Eric on the podcast that we do, and we were talking about, you know, you'd need to run 1,200 laps at Charlotte to have anybody fall out. And I don't know if they'd fall out in 1,200 laps because the stuff has gotten so good. It is so good. And everything is the best that money can buy. And um, that's what you're running against because – you got to figure that probably six owners own pretty much everything in NASCAR. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when when it comes down to those people, that's that's big fish in a small pond. 
that's hard to overcome. But coming into Darlington, uh, no one could put as much pressure on as we put on ourselves. But you Second guess in everything that you did. Don't you think NASCAR was wanting y'all to win that race, though? Didn't feel like it, but I don't know. Because it meant a lot to NASCAR, I think, that whenever y'all won that I think it meant more to R.J. Reynolds. I think it meant more to Winston than it did to NASCAR. Because every time it was mentioned, it was a Winston million. I, I think the whole year was great for NASCAR anyway, because not only did you have the million, you, you had these little races within races, because it was us against Dale. It was us against... It was other drivers against other drivers you had rivalries then that, that you really don't have today you caught a couple breaks in that race because i remember i think Earnhardt a wrecked a couple we were a fourth place car that day and you almost hit kale when his uh was his engine did nope. his engine go a little, little power steering line. power steering mm, just power steering line that's how remarkable, and that's why could have went the other way just as easy. Hand of God was all over this. Did you take a big old <laughs> deep breath when that checkered flag dropped? Shoot, no. Party on, party on. <laughs> Coors for T- everybody. T. Wayne Robertson ran the program for, for R. J. Winnells yeah. and um, for Winston, and I told T. Wayne after the race was over, we were there in Victory Lane, and I said, uh, "How about double or nothing for Atlanta?" <laughs> easy there, bandit. <laughs> I was I was Jack the Bear. I said I, I told him face I was face to face. I said double or nothing for Atlanta, and we ended up winning Atlanta. Yeah, I said double or nothing for Atlanta, and I told him after Atlanta, I said that's why you didn't bet with me. He knew. <laughs> he knew. <laughs> I got one of those million dollar bills that yeah. was flying over. I got a couple I of those. Seeing those flying. Did you get the one that was misspelled? Because that's the only real one. Really? Yeah. One T and Elliot. That were the ones that was the one they couldn't even spell Elliot. So that's that's how favored you were, I think, to win. I'm the just meeting. gonna hang my head well, they just up and walk on out of here. Just let <laughs> they, him carry on. It just totally changes what I thought process is that, that NASCAR really wanted, you know, Elliot to win. You think they'd been prepared? They were a winner either way. They had the publicity coming. I out think it's R. J. Reynolds. I think R. J. loved the people at R. J. Reynolds. And the thing that was so remarkable to me about R. J. Reynolds was, and I told T. Wayne this before he got killed, how remarkable they were at human resources at hiring the right people. All of their program. I would love to be able to put the people in positions that they were able to put into and run a program like they ran that program because I can't think of a more successful organization or time because had it not been for Winston, where would NASCAR be today? And another uh, myth, I guess, was Bill didn't get a million dollars out of that. I'm sure there was probably a a percentage or something. I don't want to get into the financials of it, but I'm sure... Yolly, Pete, he's putting me on the spot here, isn't he? No, I don't want I'm just thinking. I, knew remember, how, I know how it goes today. remember that episode of the Flintstones when, when they were at the bank? <laughs> and and they somebody robbed the bank, and they had the assets wrote on a chalkboard outside the bank. <laughs> and as he came out with the bags, he erased, it, he erased part of that. The bank at Dawsonville, whenever they got the check, they went out on the little eraser board and put them out on the little little board out there. It was pretty sweet. So, but you know, it wasn't even it wasn't even really it was about the money, but it wasn't. Oh yeah, just the fact that you were First able to, to do, do this 
was absolutely, and and that really didn't even sink in until the season was over. That really didn't even sink in. How big? I mean, as far as sponsorships and 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 things like that. Anybody try to come and rip cores out, rip y'all out from underneath the the clinches of cores at that time? Or there were people that talked about it, but the relationships were so good strong. and so solid that. I think the thing that hurt the program the worst was the people that came to Bill and ripped Bill away from the family at Dawsonville. I, th- I think that was the first. As as my dad always said, your threefold cord is hard to break. Yep. And and the only way that you can win is to divide and conquer. So going back to what made all this successful, as far as your in your role, Ernie's role. Bill's role, the family. All our roles were were pretty much even. Even though we might have done a few different things, we all helped each other do what needed to be done. There weren't as we have today. You're the tire and you're specialist. Yeah, you're you're the tire specialist. You're you're the tuner. You're everybody was everything, and I think that was what was so unique, but. It was, it was truly amazing to see people, and I said this was not long ago, you, you had people that didn't grow up in racing that came in and did jobs that they learned over time how to do, or they were just so dedicated to it. And you had these people there around Dawsonville that you had working for you. Labor of love. As you said, that were that were so good that you get to the point that you think you can do better. You bring people in to replace them, or as they leave and and do other jobs, you try to replace them with people that are supposed to be better, and you end up running worse. Mm-hmm. Basically, Ernie was engines. Basically, Ernie was engines. You were transmission and rear No, I started just... out helping Ernie with the engines, and then, you know, you were putting engines in once you got them off the dynos, because I worked with Ernie on the on the engines on the dynos, and um, you were always doing a little bit of other work, whether it be different headers on the dyno, different camshafts, things like that. You were always looking for something to give you a few more horsepower. And um, Bill was doing all the chassis work. He would, if you know, we'd help him pull motor and trans out, and then we'd tear the engine down while he was tearing the car down because the car had to be magnafluxed. You had to clean all the parts. They had to be checked for cracks. And NASCAR, that was one of the sheets that NASCAR had to have when you went to the next race was Magnaflux sheet to make sure that you had checked all the parts, make sure none of the components were broken. And um, because you didn't want to go to Daytona, Talladega, or anywhere and have a tie rod break or any of the chassis components fail and you end up wrecking the car, they didn't want to see that either. So you end up being a little bit of everything and... In the early years, even me, Ernie, and Bill all drove the truck when we first got started. We were nobody flew; everybody drove except for the West Coast, and and that was a tough deal. So, and I ended up driving to the West Coast time or two, and 
that's just a long haul. It's it was forty hours straight through to the west coast. So that's a different show in itself, right there. Yeah, that's a different coast show to coast itself. with Dan Elliott. Yeah, yeah, coast to coast. <laughs> so you better you better have it hammered down because we stopped three times going out there. Stopped three times for fuel. Didn't yeah. have any women on the way. There was like n- your wives. There was nobody <laughs> needed to stop and pull over every twenty minutes. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, but you were gone. You had to because you raced the Sunday before, and the next Sunday you were going to be in California. Yeah. So you pretty much had to have everything ready to go because you had to be out there on Thursday. So Tuesday and Wednesday was driving. And then uh, race day, you were the jack man or tire changer? Tire changer. Tire changer. Got run over twice. Got run over in California first time. That's what time. we were talking about today, the California accident. Yep. And then got run over again in Atlanta in 80, 89. And is that the, the accident occurred in Atlanta? Would you say that that's what created the speed limits in the pits? Absolutely. That was the event that, that created it? Yeah. That was, uh, excuse me, that was 90. Because they came in in 91 and changed speed limit on pit road. And um, I remember I worked the first four races in 91 because I, I wanted to make sure I could still... It had gotten to the point I was getting ready to, to quit the pit road deal anyway because that's very, very demanding. And I ain't no big frame person as it is, so that was very demanding. I can remember one race at Dover in 90. We changed... We had... Ten four tire pit stops during the race wore my butt out, and then you then you then you come to Atlanta and you don't have many pit stops that that day we got run over. But um, still, that's a very demanding deal because the tire and wheel is sixty two pounds, and you're slinging them things all day long, and you're jumping down on your knees. And I'm amazed. I still got my knees that I was that God gave me as a kid. So. I'm still amazed that I really got my whole body. But um, anyway, um, you come into that race and and all that happens. And then first four races in 91, I wanted to work them just to make sure I could. So we go to Daytona and down there and they put the pit, uh, speed limit on pit road. And I'm thinking, this is the most boring thing you've ever done. <laughs> Uh, you know, what an adrenaline rush it was to, to do the pit stops when there was no speed limit and the cars come down to there and they're cooking. So even being run over twice, you were against? I was against the, the pit road speed limit, yeah. I, I was against it because, man, you talk about an adrenaline rush. takes the element out of the race, too, kind of, in my in It my really does because, you know, that's that's part of the deal of getting off the racetrack onto pit road getting down to your pit and getting back up to speed and and um man i thought this is too boring for me <laughs> i guess they didn't have the pit road penalty back then probably not which is what chase got this past weekend i didn't have a lot of things back then <laughs> <laughs> folks we're going to take another break we're with uh, dan Elliott going over some old stores he's going to take us out here in the driveway we're going to learn how to do a couple tire changes right quick and we'll I be right back and i can't get up <laughs> We'll probably all follow them. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to The Crossing, where the music meets the memories. Transforming the way you listen to sports. Yep, we've covered all of it, at least since 1978, 79, 80, 81, 82. Okay, you get the point. We've got it covered. The North Georgia Sports League. 
go ahead. Like us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Keyword search, North Georgia Sports Link. Come see us at Pete's Castle in Coal Mountain. Get yourself some hoop cheese or salty fish right out of the barrel. Fill her up with some fresh petrol, regular and ethyl. Lance crackers are a good cold knee high. Don't forget to try your luck out on a punch board. New ones every week. Located on Highway 9 in Coal Mountain. That's Peach Castle, where the customer is the king. Beautiful downtown Coal Mountain. Yep. Oh, Dan Elliott bringing us rolling? back. Dan Elliott bringing us back in because Chris has got his mind on something. He's been out there. He got I'm hit by an air wrench when he was working on that pit stop. I'm wore out. We uh, we changed four tires in 45 minutes. He was there watching that girl put her spandex top on at Richmond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, the first uh, set I ever saw was in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. On top of a Winnebago. We used to go down to Atlanta. My daddy had a Winnebago. And we'd park it right down in the infield. To our breast in turn two. <laughs> yeah. My All dad right. had a crane. There's two kinds of podcasts, and this ain't one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Back to pit stops. <laughs> Yeah. Well, how are the pit stops pretty close to time as they used to be back when you guys were doing them? In dog years. <laughs> <laughs> They're not even close because you look at the athletes they have today. When back before it was just the people that worked with the team. You, you had brute you, force in, not athletes. You just had people that worked. And, and they were just, they were specialists in everything. They were, as my dad always said, jack of all trades, master of none. And um, everybody had to do everything because you couldn't afford it. Number one, you just couldn't afford it. Yeah. And and nowadays, you can afford to, you know, you got your B-team football teams now that, that pit the cars. And uh, if, if you're not good enough to get in the NFL, then you can come to NASCAR and you can pit a car and um, make pretty doggone good money. They'll fly you in on Sunday morning. You do your job, get your money, and fly out on Sunday night. And the motor coaches, don't you wish you'd had the motor coach back in those days? I remember, the days I remember Bill said, I'll never have one Shit. right before he got one. <laughs> I, seen it, I seen a YouTube video of him showing his off the other day. Yeah. So you get close with the, with the championship in, in the late 80s. You well, 85, 85, we finished second. And, had it uh, won pretty much. So no, we didn't have it won because you, you had the last race was Riverside. No, remember it's Riverside or Atlanta, but we we broke a – what got me into my transmission and gear work was right. we broke a shift cam in the transmission. And um, that was – what really got me started in the career that I'm still doing today because I love my trans and gear work. I've got friends that, that I've had since the 80s. Um, George Flurry, he's in Minnesota, and he came down and helped me get started in this, and I owe the world to him for what he believed in us and, and did a lot for us. And... Um, then Richmond Gear up in Liberty, South Carolina, did so much for us. And um, Don Walsh was at Ford. Uh, Don has since retired, but uh, he's D&D, and they do transmissions up in Michigan. And still friends with all these people. And Motive Gear, Motive Gear uh, I've got a good friend, Greg Brown. And we go back a long way because I've done a lot of R&D stuff with them. 
that has enabled me to do things that I never thought somebody in Dawsonville, Georgia, could do. I've got a prototype transmission in a truck of my son's right now that there's only one in the world, and we've got it. And it's in his truck. We're testing it now, waiting on the patents and stuff to, to get through, but this is through that company in Chicago. But those little little parts and things were part of what was the downfall to the... That's what got you into where you're at today and and how much you've learned in that process through through the evolution of the whole car. You just learn your components and 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 if you and if you're smart you pick up things here and there and you if you're blessed you get the connections and, and you kinda of put things together and and uh, really been blessed with a lot of good connections. So close, but no cigar until 88 when you did win the championship. Yeah, but it makes you appreciate 88 so much so more. So much more. Mm-hmm. Because you you thought that 85 was a shoe-in. You, you thought that, you know, whether you thought you were going to win the championship or not, finishing second, I felt like we did. It didn't matter to me because it was such a, a phenomenal year. And it was at a time that... Um, you still felt like you could do no wrong, and um, you you had to learn through the next couple of years that, yeah, you're going to do a lot more wrong before you do a lot more right. Had to learn how to win, basically. You had to learn to be humble yeah. through the whole thing because that's the only thing that would keep you grounded. And then 92, everything kind of gets turned upside down when Bill moves to junior johnson Mm -hmm. it really got turned upside down because we had a we had so many different drivers in the nine car over the course of that year it was unbelievable and you just didn't even realize how bad everything was shaken to the core because the first thing is always morale and, you know, not working with, and, and that was the whole deal, I think, before was was working with family. It made it easier to do that. You, you still had your struggles, even with family, but you were still of one goal. You were still, as, as the disciples were, they were all still of one accord. Yep. The only car that's mentioned in the Bible is the Honda Accord. <laughs> How many different drivers did y'all have driving that number nine after Bill? Shoot, I can't remember. We had quite a number of different drivers, but it all ended up pretty ugly. So, was there thoughts that that Casey maybe would end up in that car? I think at one particular point in time there probably was, but um, that was not meant to be. So, didn't shape out that way. No. <clears throat> more than anything could do about that once the genie's out of the bottle it was just hard to get that magic back on it well With, you know a, a lot evolved. of a lot Technology. of times a lot of times Sport changed it's um people don't realize but fairy tales are usually once in a lifetime mm-hmm. and and i tell everybody you know what they so they asked me what were those years like and i said it was like a fairy tale you lived fairy tale and and still you look back on it and <clears throat> you read in the books about the things that were written about or that you did or the different things and and still sometimes you just can't even conceive it. Uh, and during it was, that it fairy tale time, can you think of people that you got to meet that 
I think like, everybody, because I drove the truck for most of that period right there. And when I left the racetrack, it was always that deal at the racetrack was like going to school every week. You got to know the people that well. And people talk about the the ongoing um battle with Dale Sr. and Bill, and I said, well, let me tell you about that one. I said, we went to Rockingham, I think it was 1986. We only had one car there, and that was the race car, and we didn't want to do the pit crew competition and risk tearing up our only car we had. So next thing I knew, um, next thing I knew is we were pitting Dale's car on pit road for the pit crew competition. And it was one of those things where it was just amazing to where you you talked about how did you get help from other people. Well, as you earn that right, as you, as you go through that, as you go down that road, you earn the respect of other people. So when it came time to, when when the chips were really down, there was always somebody there that would help you do something if you were in need, and, and that's as what I'm I loved sure y'all about paid it. it forward too. <clears throat> Absolutely, you you tried to do the same thing. You, you you didn't give away the farm, but if somebody truly needed something, if you needed to borrow something or you needed something, there were people there to go to. You feel like it's that same way now, the brotherhood. <laughs> I think that most all the teams are so self sufficient that. They ain't got to worry about nobody else. No, they don't have to worry about anybody else. You know, I've been to a racetrack before when you wreck the only car that you have and you got to send back to the shop to get the show car. You know, we heard the story of Kale and how they got the show car and, and won the race, and that stuff really happens. I mean, it really happens. But but sometimes it's it's kind of a fluke deal because I believe the car that we won the million with was the one that Bill was... At Rockingham, I think he was following Richard during the race, and Ernie said, just stick with Richard. You know, y'all can <clears throat> run good together, and Richard ends up blowing up, and Bill gets in the wall. <laughs> and uh, it tears up the front end of the car and the side, so car goes to Banjo and gets front clip and side rail and stuff, and that's a car that comes back and wins a million. Million dollars, million dollar clip right there. Million dollar clip, and and it's those things where you have a race car that's a mediocre race car. You tear the wall down and fix it, and it's a better car. And you stand there and scratch your head and say, "What the heck?" You know, how do you make a better car out of a piece of junk? Because once once a race car got wrecked, nobody usually wanted that race car. Yeah, it was the one that usually went out back or got buried out back. So to the graveyard, yep. up there, at, <clears throat> sitting up there at talents. <clears throat> Sitting on the wall at Talents, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) downtown Cold Mountain, (laughs) home of the billboard. Dan, thank you so much for these for talking to us about this because I've been wanting to talk to you about a lot of these things for years and never had the the time or the opportunity to. And we've enjoyed it, but uh, this been a trip. This is a trip down memory lane. I can tell you. Yeah, he said he wouldn't be able to remember anything. I said, well, we got just enough to maybe jostle it a little bit. But present time, Chris, we're sitting with the latest, one of the latest inductees into the Georgia Racing Hall of Fame last year, Dan Elliott, folks. How was that? I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm impressed. Um, it, it really is sweet to be recognized by the people of your own city. I think that just pretty much says it all because usually the your hardest audience is the ones you grow up with. They don't cut you any slack. No, they uh, sure don't. We can attest to that yeah. as we've grown up together and pretty honest. Love yep. you like a brother, but I'll cut, <laughs> cut you in a minute. <laughs> Talk about staying grounded. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's amazing how the Elliott family, the legacy of the Elliott family just continues to to. Well, I think, I, I think it all goes back to mother and daddy and what daddy was, was able to put together, but also with the support of mother and even grandmother. Man, she was, grandma was, was something else when it came to, to us over there. They asked her one time about cheating, and she said, those boys never cheat, so... <laughs> She, she set, them, sure she set them straight, yeah, she <laughs> set them straight. But the hard work, that was the thing that um, that probably out of it all, and man, it's hard to lay it down because, gosh, at the age I am now, it's still hard to lay it down. And somebody asked me the other day, said, uh, you're not retired yet? And I said, I'm like the seven dwarfs. I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I guess. <laughs> I did some. I was going to do some research the other day, and I just put YouTube Dan Elliott. I'm like, I'm going to get a lot of NASCAR footage and interviews and stuff. And there he is, step by step, how to rebuild this or build this transmission. And I'm like, yeah, I've got a couple of YouTube yeah. videos, and then I've got one I did. I looked for one. I didn't find the one I was looking for. To I've got the tractor that my mother bought in the late 80s, and I'm so proud of it, and it had a power steering leak, and I went to YouTube to see what I could find, and I really didn't find anything, and I did my own, so yeah, put that I can, one I can on re- I can do that. Tra- I'm a transmission specialist now, if any NASCAR teams out there needing me. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's it's like I told my son, I said, here's the deal. I said, the, the T10 is is really what I cut my teeth on as far as, and, and there were so many things of my era that were done that people have no clue was even done that we raced and they have no clue that this stuff was ever even done and how many different ratios people think that well the only ratios are the ones that was in the book well that's bs because there were so many ratios that were come up with and uh, that was the relationship with richmond gear how much of this stuff came about because of racing and how much of this stuff is out there somewhere that people still have some components, but nobody will know this stuff on you know on my pice and and if nobody else goes on to YouTube, I had to pull up a bunch of stuff that I had rat hold for thirty years just to show some of the different components and what we raced thirty years ago. Yeah. And and people think today, well, you know, they they just came out with this. This is this is really nice. But let's go back thirty years. I'll show you the same thing. I want to ask you a question that I've always heard, and I really don't know how I'm going to phrase it. But I had always heard that the front end to most of the uh, NASCAR vehicles, cars, up until I don't know, maybe the early nineties, were all a facsimile or through the. Uh, Machinery of like a they run like a sixty three forward front end. Is that taking any? They were they were of the galaxies because banjo. There's there's two schools thought front steer rear steer and banjo was rear steer, which is the galaxy 
most of the it really is like the 65 66 ford galaxy that's that's what that was patterned from and then the front steer was patterned from the gm and the front steer allowed you to do things that made the geometry where when they came with power steering the front steer was the only way you could do this because of how the caster was done in the front end and and how the car drove but just like the races that we're seeing today you as a driver you grow up driving a rear steer car and then all of a sudden now you're in a front steer car with power steering there is a relearning process and just like nascar is playing with the rules now on the engine horsepower there is a learning process that these drivers are going through because of how differently you have to drive the car whether you drive it, whether you're able to drive it wide open through the corners, there is a process you go through to do this because you've got to earn, unlearn some things to learn some yeah. new things. I'm sorry, this couldn't really be a tech show. We, we're not too tech savvy about it, but we can make fun. We can make fun of folks. Yeah, and, but, but and just make like me, I, you know, in, in human my, interest. That's a that's me and Chris. Human, human and interest. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that probably in my career, I've probably rebuilt more than 2,500. T10 type, whether you go back to the stock, and and now we're probably up to five or six generations above the stock T10 that came out in the, well, it came out in the 50s, but the 60s, you're you're probably five or six generations up from that, and then the nine-inch Ford rear end is basically, when you look at it, the same thing, probably built 2,500 of them, but when you look at what a ring and pinion costs you today, at one time, you could buy a ring and pinion across the counter for a little over 100 bucks, and now in cup, you're paying $2,800 for a ring and pinion. So who, who, is your, who predominantly is your clientele? For, you know, you'll never business. be able to do work for a team anymore because all that's in-house, and they deal directly with the manufacturers, with the people that make this race stuff. Yeah. And it's, and it's gotten so technical because now the transmission that ran Daytona this past February was probably a 20 grand gearbox. And you go back to the 80s when we were running that stuff, and a good gearbox sand would probably cost you three grand. Okay, so a lot of difference in yesterday and today. Gearbox was six times more than what Harry Mellon gave y'all to scoot on through a couple more. Exactly, <laughs> but but look at look at look at everything across yeah. the board. Yeah, well, you know, you look at look at how much your McDonald's burger is today. You know, compared to go back to the '80s and how much it was. But who comes who comes to you now? Who is your who's your my client? clientele or the people that my connections that I had through the '80s, '90s, and the, and the 2000s that run Road Atlanta, that run Sebring. Uh, I did stuff for when Panos had their driving schools. They had three driving schools. And I did a lot of the, they were running the Tremec five-speed transmission at that time. They were having some problems. So they came to me and asked me if I'd look at it. So we got together and I was doing 10 a week. They had 125 in rotation. And that's what got me my deal with, with Motive, of, of coming up with another five-speed was what I learned through that five-speed. So it's just been an evolution. One thing begets other. And, and that's just it. And then customers, I have customers that, that have street stuff that know that I know what I'm looking for and I know what it takes for a, even a street transmission to live because you're talking now an, an LS engine 
is you, you can do 850 to 1200 horse mm-hmm. in a street LS transmit in, in a LS engine. So how do they get a hold of you? They call the shop, <clears throat> get a website, any of that? They need to call me. And Chris. I try to stay hid as much as I can. <laughs> On the DL, you got all the work you need. I've been blessed with with what I've got going on, and and the customers that I've had. I've got one good customer in Delaware. I've got a couple out on the West Coast. I did um, one for Australia, and um, just just been blessed with people that know my work and know what I do, and um, been been very very blessed. As we wind down this episode with Dan, wind Dan down. Elliott, we're <clears throat> We're going, against we're, the chip. We're going to a uh, <laughs> segment we like to call rapid fire. Rapid fire. So I'm going to give you a subject, and you're going to tell me the first thing that comes <clears throat> to your mind. Well, I mean, Chris wants to ask you the first song you ever learned on guitar from start to finish because he asks everybody that. So First song on guitar, Smoke on the Water. I'm kind of like uh, John Bellucci was in <laughs> Animal House with a guitar. <laughs> Over the top of the head. Pound that thing against the wall. <laughs> That's a little stigma he has. He has to ask everybody. Kind of like Jerry Lee Lewis and the piano. <laughs> okay, you ready? Can NASCAR come back to its original glory? Quick answer. Don't, we don't have to get in detail about I don't, economics uh, or nothing. There's not a quick answer to that. Um, your definition of glory is different from everybody else's today. It, it's it's fine in its own, and it'll get there. But it's going to so be too. a different. It's going to be a different NASCAR than what we grew up with. It's not my daddy's NASCAR, that's for sure. No, and and it's not. The world's different too. Atlanta reconfiguration, yay or nay? Did you like it? No. Uh, Bristol asphalt or concrete? Asphalt. Wilkesboro, Nashville. Bring them back. Buddy, bring them back. Rockingham. Can't bring them back fast enough. What would you get rid of to replace those? Because you can't go extra. you got to take something away. Let's take away the cookie cutters. Mile and a half racetracks, they're all the same. So let's let's take them away or reconfigure them or do something different. Do you like the Roval? Um, jury's still out on it. I like any road course because, as I told Bill one time, you got to think. You got to turn left, turn right, and shift. You got to think. So Fast. I love I love any road course. Okay, what unknown Dawsonville driver could have made it in NASCAR from your hometown back in the day? Me, you, Dan. <laughs> Dan Elliott is a race winner, folks. We forgot to mention that. Tell them about that exactly race you right. won. That's exactly right. Consolation race, Dixie Speedway. Year mm. was? 1975. <laughs> it's got to be on YouTube somewhere. I'm going to look for it. YouTube wasn't even thought about. What's your uh, go-to order at the pool room? My go-to order at the pool room? Well, I told Gordon I'd be back when my cholesterol was below 900. So what does that tell you? I'm with you. Too many burgers. Too many. The bully burger? <laughs> Too many. Gordon Perkle's contribution to Dawsonville and NASCAR. You know, um, he is just unbelievable at, at how he supported racing and what he has done there. He's, he's kept it alive in Dawsonville, that's for sure. Dan Elliott, you're a man among the people. We appreciate you having us. Man among the people. <laughs> man among the people. Common folks like me and Chris. Do you think the light will be red at Cole Mountain? <laughs> It'll be flashing. You better slow down when you go through that. I don't want to slow down. <laughs> Folks, I, I, one question yes. i got to ask. Yes. Is NASCAR mostly like Days of Thunder or Talladega Nights? Whew, that's, that's bad either way. <laughs> 
I was going to ask, what's the biggest event to happen in NASCAR? Petty winning his 200th and beating Kel by just a nose. I remember, I remember too much about Talladega Nights. I hope it's not going there. <laughs> Stroker Ace. That was my favorite NASCAR oh, movie. Well, yeah. Stroker Ace, that, that was definitely a funny movie. Oh, gosh, I had one more rapid fire question. That had thought, what it, was, was that? it was ZZ Top. ZZ Top. <laughs> yep. ZZ Top. Boss Seeger. That was probably my most favorite concert. I went to Atlanta and saw was Bob Seeger. I saw him this past December. It was a great show. Unbelievable. Still, that, that man is unbelievable. Like he's still 25. Yeah, but the songs are... Timeless. Ageless, timeless, and and um, a, a lot are, but there are a lot of his that truly are. I, you know, the one line that I love the best is, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. Mm-hmm. Mm. Gosh. I'd like to end it on that, but i got to ask you one more rapid-fire question. <laughs> <laughs> Janet Guthrie, underrated or overrated? I would say for her time, I think Lynn St. James was underrated. I think she was a better driver, but Janet Guthrie was definitely, for her time, was very good. I saw uh, some kind of ESPN special on mm-hmm. that. Uh, they, it, was, it was a great piece. But yep. did they look as good in the bikini? It's Danica Patrick. I told you there's two kinds of podcasts, <laughs> and this ain't one of them. I know nothing. We're going to sign off. Thank you all for joining us tonight with Dan Elliott. Dan, thank you for coming in. Look for future shows. Share this with your friends because we need the exposure, and we've promised Dan this check that's probably going to bounce when we send it to him. But uh, I mean there's money involved? No. Be the first time. <laughs> I'll give you half of my cut. Join <laughs> us next time for the crossing where the music meets the memories, or as Dan Elliott would say, where the rubber meets the road. Catch y'all next time. The Crossing, where music meets memories, is recorded at Do South Productions, high atop the Doc Holcomb Building in downtown Coal Mountain, and is recorded and mixed by Steve Thomason and hosted by Chris Cheatham and Coal Mountain Cal Hurd. Theme music written, performed, and recorded by Wendell Cox. The Crossing is a production of Roadhog Studios and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Do South Productions or at least a text message from Cal or Chris. That'll do too. All rights reserved. All right, we'll catch you next time on The Crossing.